Hi there, welcome to our Soul Food Broadcast, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. This morning, so please stand with me and we will read it. 2 Samuel chapter 6. Second Samuel 6, verse 1. Again, David gathered all the choice men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, whose name is called by the name, the Lord of hosts, who dwells between the cherubim. So they set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, drove the new cart. And they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, accompanying the ark of God. And Ahio went before the ark. Then David and all the house of Israel played music before the Lord on all kinds of instruments, of fir wood, on harps, on stringed instruments, on tambourines, on sistrums, and on cymbals. And when they came to Nacon's threshing floor, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was aroused against Uzzah, and God struck him there for his error, and he died there by the ark of God. Father, we do pray that you would take these words, Lord, a very sobering passage that we need to hear. It's not all about you being the God of love. You're also a God of holiness who is a consuming fire. And we have to serve you in the way that you tell us. So I pray you would just take those truths and drive them into our spirits today. We ask in Christ's name, amen. Thank you. you. May be seated. <clears throat> How easy it is for us to put people in a box. We take one look at them, and it's easy to categorize them based on their appearance or something we think that we know about them. Over the years, this has been especially true with blondes, for instance. And so this blonde lady was tired of everyone thinking that blondes were stupid and she didn't like all the blonde jokes. To end the injustice, she decided to prove the world that she was smart. In order to prove herself, she chose to memorize the capital of every American state. It wasn't an easy task, but she was determined and eventually managed to do it. A few days later, she was at a bar and heard a couple of men laughing at a blonde joke. This was the perfect opportunity to start righting all the wrongs that had been done to blondes in the past. And so she would be the one that would set these men straight. Marching over at a rapid pace, she announced, It isn't true that all blondes are stupid, and I will prove it. Just ask me the capital of any American state, and I will tell you what it is. Although a little surprised, one man did challenge her and asked, Okay, how about Wisconsin? What's the capital of Wisconsin? The blonde, after giving a moment's thought, probably gave her answer. That would be W. 
I didn't know you were going to be here. <laughs> Unfortunately, many of us are in the habit of also putting God in a box too. Maybe not a wooden box overlaid by gold like the ark, but a box nonetheless. We have tried to reduce God to our terms so that we can manage Him. We have our own ideas about what God is like, and we come up with our own ideas about how we should worship Him. And more often than not, that kind of familiarity stems from our familiarity with God. Many of us have been around God and His people for so long that things become accustomed and comfortable, and we run the danger of getting stuck. In a rut. Chapter 6 is about David bringing the Ark of the Covenant into the city of Jerusalem. This, as we will see, was momentous in significance, but it requires careful attention from us if we are to learn the lessons from this event. Look at verse 1. Again, David gathered all the choice men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal, Judah, to bring up from there the Ark of God, whose name is called by the name the Lord of hosts, who dwells between the cherubim. The defeat of the Philistines that we studied last week had made it possible for David to undertake this venture. Baal Judah is another name for Kiriath-Jerim and is located about nine miles of west, west of Jerusalem, roughly halfway between Geba and Gezer. This is where the ark had been left some seven decades earlier, following its dramatic time in the hands of the Philistines. The ark was a gold-plated wooden box, approximately 3 feet 9 inches long by 2 feet 3 inches, both wide and high. It had been made in the day of Moses according to God's instructions. It was fitted with gold rings through which gold-plated poles were placed by which it was to be carried. This will be significant later in the story. On top of the ark was a pure gold cover with a solid gold cherub at each end. Inside the ark were the stone tablets on which were engraved the words of the Ten Commandments. Now, strange things happened wherever the ark was situated. Like the time the ark was set up in the temple of Dagon. But in the morning, the temple priest found the idol of Dagon was toppled and found lying on its face. To which one priest was overheard to exclaim, Dagon it. I'm saying that every time I get to this passage. But anyway, at last the idol suffered the indignity of having the hands and head cut off and placed on the threshold of the temple. It was unnerving how this kept happening. Now the Philistines were not stupid. They realized that everywhere the Ark of the Covenant went and kept as a prize of war, people died. So they sent the ark back with what they thought would be appropriate gifts to say that they were sorry for seizing the ark. Placing the ark on a cart drawn by two milk cows while their calves were pinned up, they watched as the cows dutifully drew the cart into Israel, lowing for their calves all the while. The Philistines sent men to watch until the cart finally reached a place called Beth Shemesh. That was a Levitical community situated in Naphtali, and on the border of Israel and Philistia. But some of the people there looked inside the ark, and their face melted. 
Well, it's actually from the Raiders of the Lost Ark movie, but you get the idea. It wasn't good. So why did David want the ark in Jerusalem? For one thing, he wanted to honor the Lord and give him his rightful place as king of the nation. But David also had a secret desire in his heart to build a sanctuary for the Lord. And the first step in doing that would be to place the ark in the capital city. It was David's hope that by doing this, past divisions and tribal differences would be forgotten as the people would now focus on the Lord. The presence of the ark meant the presence of the Lord, and the presence of the Lord meant safety and victory. But one thing was missing. There is no record that David sought the mind of the Lord in this matter. Relocating the ark to Jerusalem seemed like a wise idea, and everybody was enthusiastic about doing it, but David didn't follow his usual pattern of asking the Lord for his directions. After all, what pleases the king and what pleases the people might not please God, and what doesn't please God will not have his blessings. Verse 3, So they set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, drove the new cart. And they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, accompanying the ark of God. And Ahio went before the ark. Here is where all of the problems are going to start. You see, God had given strict instructions on who and how the ark of the covenant was to be transported. It was to be one tribe, the tribe of Levi, and one family out of that tribe, the tribe of Kohath. The Kohathites of the Levites were to transport the ark only on their shoulders. Now also here, the designation of Abinadab of Kiriath-Jerim has problematic issues with it. And the reason is the Hebrew Bible does not identify him as being a Levite. And also, the territory of Kiriath-Jerim was a settlement of the tribe of Judah and not Kohath. And also, the writer of Chronicles explicitly states that the outbreak against Uzzah happened because the Levites were not involved in transporting the ark, which would rule out Abinadab and his sons as being Levites. Now, for 70 years, the ark had rested at Kiriath-Jerim. And Kiriath-Jerim was about nine miles west of Jerusalem. It could have been moved to the nation's capital easily in just one day. And so David arranged to place the ark on a cart driven by the two sons of Abinadab. But what is a cart? It's nothing more than boards and big wheels. I like that analogy. Because far too often we want to see God's glory in the church. We think the answer begins with a board meeting and bringing in some big wheels. Now a cart is made up of board and big wheels, but God won't be moved by such means. He is only moved by his obedient children. I think this is an important thing to remember also. The ark had been in Uzzah's house for 20 years. One can imagine that Uzzah had started to believe that he was in charge of the ark, and thus, in a way, also in charge of God. 
People down through the ages have postulated that Uzzah not only had God's box, but he had God in a box, and that he was in charge of it. Perhaps he had been around it for so long that he no longer viewed it with the reverence that it demanded and deserved. Once again, God had given specific instructions through Moses how the tabernacle was to be erected, dismantled, and transported. So when they used a new cart driven by oxen, they were following the pattern of the pagan Philistines, not the pattern that God gave to Moses on Mount Sinai. Now the lesson here is obvious. God's work must be done in God's way if it is to have God's blessing. And the fact that all the leaders in Israel agreed to use that cart didn't make it right. But come on. It was nine miles up a hill to carry that ark. And that command was so long ago. Surely God won't mind if we take a little shortcut here. I'm sure that those commands don't apply today. Have you ever heard such things in the society that we live in now? What do you mean marriage is between one man and one woman? You're taking your instructions from a book that was written in the Stone Age. Come on, these are modern times. You don't have to carry the ark. That's why God made pickup trucks. So David attempts to do a good thing in the wrong way. He may have thought, well, this is how the Philistines did it, so we'll do it the same way. It worked for them. And that, my friends, is the danger of copying the world when it comes to spiritual matters. Anytime we use the world's methodology to try and bring in the glory of God, it will never work. And so having fog machines and laser lights doesn't impress God in the least. Now, you've probably heard the saying, don't sweat the small stuff. Now, that's great advice when it comes to dealing with life's little stresses. But sometimes we need to help sorting out what is and what is not considered to be small stuff. Disregarding God's precepts about how to treat holy things is absolutely not small stuff. Now, I think the church today needs to heed this reminder and return to the Word of God for an understanding of the will of God. No amount of unity or enthusiasm will ever compensate for disobedience. When God's work is done in man's way and we imitate the world instead of obeying the word, we can never expect the blessing of God. Now, the crowds may approve of what we do, but more importantly, what about the approval of God? Remember, the way of the world is ultimately the way of death. Verse 5. Then David and all the house of Israel played music before the Lord on all kinds of instruments of fir wood, on harps, on stringed instruments, on tambourines, on sistrums, and on cymbals. And when they came to Nacon's threshing floor, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. Then the anger of the Lord was aroused against Uzzah, and God struck him there for his error, and he died there by the ark of God. The man steering the cart was Uzzah, whose name means strength. The man in front leading the way was Ohio, whose name means 
Friendly. So catch the scene. Mr. Friendly was out front slapping backs and passing out bulletins and giving out high fives. And Mr. Strong was driving the cart in the strength of his flesh. And a parade of people were following behind them. The cart is rolling along. Mr. Friendly is out front and Mr. Flesh is at the wheel. The people are playing their guitars when suddenly they hit a bump and the arc begins to teeter. No problem, Mr. Flesh must have thought as he reached back to stabilize the ark, you know, to give God a hand. I've been there. Maybe you have also. We have our parades and our programs, our big ideas and our grand plans. And even if we do hit a bump, we think we can solve the problem by our own efforts. I find it more than coincidental that the problem occurred at a threshing floor. You see, when a farmer harvested his wheat, he would bring it to the threshing floor, throw it up in the air, and let the wind blow away the chaff, leaving the grain to fall back to the ground. The threshing floor was the place where the grain was separated from the chaff, or we could say where the substantial was separated from the trivial. Perhaps... You're at a threshing floor today. Maybe you've hit a bump at work. Maybe things are a bit shaky in your marriage. Maybe you thought you could straighten out things in your own strength. If so, pay close attention to this story. The great and noisy procession had not gone far when this apparently minor incident took place. However, the otherwise unknown threshing floor naked would forever be remembered because of a bump in the road. It was only a momentary slip of the beast's feet, but it was enough to rock the ark which was on the cart that they were pulling. The, piece, the priest driving the cart reached back to steady the ark so it wouldn't fall, but the moment he touched the ark, he fell dead. I suspect you would have to have had been watching closely to even notice what had happened. Thanks to Uzzah's attentive reaction, seemingly, no harm was done. The ark remained safely on the cart. The procession could continue. So we might think. But everything changed in that one moment. Those blowing on the trumpet lowered them in shock at what they had witnessed. The ones strumming on the lyres and the harps stopped moving their hands across the strings. The cymbals and the tambourines hung loosely from hands as the dancers stopped their dancing. Everyone stared silently. God had struck Uzzah dead. The music stopped. The joyful shouts became a trembling silence. The procession changed from an excited happy parade to a stunned and frightened crowd. Now Uzzah lay dead beside the ark. This was the Lord's doing. In his anger, he struck down Uzzah. It is a horrifying scene. What had happened? Why did it happen? It is difficult for many people to accept that God does not have to explain himself to us. He is not answerable to us. 
He is not obliged to win our approval. Our reaction to what happened to Uzzah, like the reaction of those who were there that day, is an excellent indication of whether we believe this or not. Over the years, many have complained that God was unfair to kill Uzzah when he tried to protect the ark from damage or shame when the oxen stumbled and the ark slipped. Should not Uzzah have been praised for lunging forward to protect the ark? But think of this. When the Philistines, who had no access to the special revelation of God, sinned by touching the ark by using a cart to transport it, God's anger did not burn against them. Why is that? Yes, Lord. Because God is more merciful toward those less knowledgeable of his will than toward those who are more knowledgeable. That is why it will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than it will be for those who personally witnessed the great acts of the Savior in Capernaum. Another case of trivializing what is holy can be seen in the brief reference to Nadab and Abihu offering strange fire on the altar of God. Now, it is impossible to say whether the two sons of Aaron the high priest erred in the manner in which they lighted their fire pans, the timing, or the place of the offering. Now, the connection with strong drink and the possibility of intoxication cannot be ruled out also, given the proximity and discussion of that matter in the same context. If that was the problem, then the drink may have impeded the son's ability to think and to act responsibly in a task that called for the highest degree of alertness, caution, and sensitivity. But let's give Uzzah the benefit of the doubt that he meant well. However, good intentions do not count for fulfilling the will of God. Uzzah was intent on seeing that God was not dishonored by allowing the ark to topple off the cart. But that was a serious problem because, once again, the ark of the covenant was never to have been transported on a cart in the first place. God had given specific instructions of the manner in which the ark was to be transported. And so Uzzah may have been very sincere, but you can be sincerely wrong. For example, those men who flew those planes into the World Trade Center were very sincere. And yet we all know that murdering all of those innocent people was wrong, no matter how sincere they may have been. And so when we are dealing in matters of absolute truth, sincerity cannot be the gauge for that. What I mean is, 2 plus 2 equals 4. It's always going to equal 4, no matter how much I wish that it would equal 7. It reminds me of a small boy who came home from school and went straight to his room to pray. His mother had never seen her son do this, as so she listened outside his door. She heard him praying softly and saying very loudly, Tokyo, Tokyo, Tokyo. She went to his room and asked what he was doing. He responded that he had taken a geography test that very day and was worried about one of his answers. He was praying to God to ask the Lord to make Tokyo the capital of France. 
So once again, sincerity cannot be the measuring rod for truth. Uzzah, to say nothing of David, who initiated this move, failed to acquaint themselves with God's instructions concerning how the ark was to be treated. At the least, God's judgment of Uzzah warns Christians against any attempt to promote his cause through unholy means. Our responsibility is simply to do what is right. God will guard his name, his honor, and his cause. We have to do things the way that God has prescribed. Jesus taught this in a parable about a wedding feast in Matthew 22. A king threw a wedding banquet for his son, and when he came in to see the guest, there was a man there who wasn't wearing a wedding garment. Now, you have to know that in first century Palestine, weddings, every guest would be given a wedding garment as soon as they came through the door. It was just part of the deal as for being a guest. For some reason, this guy decided he wasn't going to wear his wedding garment. So when the king comes in to see his guest, he notices a man there who's not wearing wedding clothes. Friend, he asks, how did you get in here without wearing wedding clothes? The man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, Tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Likewise, when we accept God's invitation to fellowship with him, when we come into his presence to worship, it is no small matter. And we can't approach God on our own terms and disregard what God has said is the right way to approach him. Jesus said that to properly worship God, it has to be done in spirit and in truth. Well, David and Israel was worshiping God in spirit that day. They just weren't going through the external motions. They were all sincere. They were worshiping God with their whole selves. But they weren't worshiping in truth. They weren't worshiping according to what God had clearly ordered. And this cost Uzzah his life. Let us remember that God not only keeps his promises, but he also fulfills all of his threats. Now, as we close, I've been challenged various times by individuals questioning why I would speak against specific sins. The reason is, is that the one who stands in Christ's stead bears responsibility to warn others of their sin. Now, we must not seek to deliberately ever harm anyone. But neither must we be silent in matters of evil. We must not speak with anger towards any individual, even when we find their actions abhorrent and reprehensible. We must warn sinners in love and point them to the freedom that is found in Christ. You see, we live in a world that is determined to label every form of speech that they find objectionable as hate speech. So the Christian must guard to ensure that his or her language is the language of love and marked by grace as he or she proclaims the mercy of God and warns that the living God is the one that we all have to give an account to. To act in this manner is not hateful. Actually, it's quite the contrary. It's the demonstration of the love that is absent in this dying world. So this morning, I want you to know It's not that God is too dangerous to approach. It's that we need to approach him with the proper attitude and the proper heart 
and in the proper way. It's kind of like approaching electricity. It's not that it's too dangerous. It's just that it needs to be approached properly. And in a similar way, we need to approach God in a way that acknowledges His holiness. You see, nothing could be more foolish than a casual attitude toward Jesus Christ. Those who despise Him are making a very big mistake. Those who ignore Him are just as careless. Those who claim to follow Him but take Him for granted, caring little about His perfection and power, will one day regret their casual attitude towards the Lord. Nothing is more important than who He is and what He has done. Therefore, He is not answerable to us. We are answerable to Him. He is not obliged to us. We are obliged to Him. He does not exist to do our will. We exist to do His will. It does not matter whether He pleases us. It matters supremely that we please Him. There is no reason at all that He should meet our ideas of what right and goodness are. We need to be and do what is right in His eyes. And all of this is how it should be. And He is completely worthy of all of that devotion. And Father, I pray that we would all get that this morning. It is so easy, Lord, to treat you in a way that is not worthy of who you are. Help us to realize, God, that you live an unapproachable life, that you are a God that is a consuming fire, that while you are nothing but love, you are also nothing but holy, and those things are equal in your character. So give us a special and fresh revelation of who you are and how we need to change our lives to match up to that. We ask in Christ's name, amen.